Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. everyone welcome to this week's modern drama podcast billy amandola here um i gotta say that you know this you know i'm always excited when we when i do a podcast because it's i'm fans of just about everybody i you know i, I won't do an interview if i'm not a fan of somebody because you know that's just me so i've been a fan of uh, a fan of uh, our next guest um god since probably three weeks ago yeah, two weeks ago. <laughs> this is about three weeks ago. <laughs> three weeks. Yeah. No, but seriously, probably since the 90s. Um, you know, so ladies and gentlemen, Josh Freese. Hello. Hey, 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 how are you? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for taking this time because I got to say, I did have to do some research because you do so much <laughs> yeah. that. The only other person I think who makes my head spin like that is uh, buddy Kenny Arnold. <laughs> yeah, Kenny's a busy boy as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but I mean, if, if, if people are not familiar, you know, hopefully they'll learn something more about you or just be reminded from, from this. And, um, you know, if not, they'll, you know, they look them up, you know, you'll see that it's like, it's mind boggling. And where do you get this energy? I have no idea. I, I really, I, I mean, to be honest, I think it's just like muscle memory kind of shit as far as not just meaning literally my muscles, but just the way that I 
schedule things and my work ethic and my stamina, even if it's off stage, just in the travel and the lack of sleep and the keeping set lists together in my head. It's just something I've done my entire life. I've done it since I was a teenager, you know? So having done that constantly for, you know, over 30 years, 35 years now of playing professionally, it just becomes kind of second nature and not just the on the stage stuff, but the off the stage stuff too. Even though, you know, there's something to be said for both those things are still challenging, meaning I don't walk on stage and I'm on autopilot. You know what I mean? I'm still walking on stage, giving it my all and, and concentrating and focusing and really going for it. And same with being off stage and traveling. It's like, you know, I was in Greece last week for like 72 hours and I was like just completely spun around. I flew there. I played three gigs with Sting. I flew back had a day off, went back into some other stuff. And it's like, you know, you sleep in two hour increments, you know, and you, uh, uh, you know, you sleep when you can and you try and eat well and you just try and get through. Like I knew when I was going to Greece, I knew I had to just like pace myself and take any opportunity I could to rest or do whatever I needed to do to be prepared enough for the gig. So when I was on stage and I'm going on zero sleep and actually it's, you know, it's 9 PM there, but really to me, it's two in the afternoon and I've been up all night or two, you know what I mean? It's like meaning just like, you know, trying to, I didn't have enough time to try and uh, calibrate myself, recalibrate onto their schedule. Cause I'm like, well, shit, I'm going home on Sunday anyways. Why am I going to try and get on their schedule? I'm, well, that's, you know, I'm going to blink and I'm getting back on a plane. So it's like, just stuff like that you know like i said i'm used to it like i tell it to people and they go man i can't believe you did that but it's still it's 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 still challenging you know what i mean as much yeah. as i say oh yeah muscle memory or you know it's like that's nah, it's still it's still a lot of work but you know i signed up for it and i i like having the opportunity to do it i gotta be honest there was a time probably about 10 years ago and i just done a gig with somebody and the next morning i was getting up really early meaning i was getting up at you know i don't know 4.30 for a 6.15 flight somewhere and I'm flying in the day of a gig for somebody else and my drum tech that was with me we're walking around the airport at 4.45 or 5 a.m. after two hours sleep and I'm going man I was about to say maybe because I was just completely exhausted I don't know what else to say maybe I was just making conversation but I was about to say god this is the worst right <laughs> and right when I was about to say this is the worst I caught myself and I went you love this shit. I'm thinking to myself, you, you love this stuff. You love going on zero sleep and being, you know, red eyed and walking like a zombie through the airport to get on a flight to do a gig. This is the shit that you wanted to do, you know? And, uh, and I'm still grateful that I have the opportunity to do it. And so, uh, you know, I guess any freelance person will tell you it's tough to say no to things. So you get, you know, programmed to say yes to everything. And, uh, it's been kind of liberating in the last few years between getting older and also with the pandemic hitting and realizing, yeah. oh my God, you know, everyone's yeah. lives getting turned upside down. Yeah, touring uh, took some hit on that. Absolutely. But I realized too, even before the pandemic, I was getting used to actually starting to say no a little bit. And the... Uh, that break came in handy in, in a way. Yeah, yeah for, for a year and a half, I didn't have to say no because there was no... There was no one to say yes. <laughs> there was to. no one to say no. <laughs> you know? 
I had a bunch of buddies calling me saying, Billy, man, can you have anything for me? You have anything that I could do? Can I write a story? Can I, cause you know, they would, they, they weren't used to being just home doing nothing, but yeah. some of them loved it. Now they don't want to go back on the road. Well, I gotta be honest. I, uh, you know, I've got four young kids and uh, I've got four young kids and I travel a lot. I tour a lot and I have my entire life. So it's really like when I couldn't talk about it too much in certain circles of friends of mine, because I had a lot of musicians, a lot of working musicians that really took a hit, you know what I mean? And it was really difficult financially, right. uh, mentally, you know? Uh, and for me, I felt lucky enough that I had a support system in my wife and kids and also had saved a little bit of money, you know, and uh, wasn't, uh, didn't have the burden of uh, financial woes, you know, as right. much as I went, holy mackerel, I'm making a lot less money than I've ever made in my entire life. I kind of, after I took a couple, you know, deep breaths, I went, you know, I'm going to be okay. And this is going to be all right. And um, like I said, once I started getting used to being at home and kind of like getting to the groove of not being constantly busy, I did enjoy it. You know, there were some some definite oh. silver linings to things. And but I couldn't talk about it too much around friends of mine that were really suffering. I couldn't go, man, isn't it great having to be home and just sitting around? Like, you know what I mean? Right. But you know, there's right. lots of guys that did not feel that way. And for, you know, obvious understandable reasons. And I went to New York about four months ago. I went to New York to do a little bit of recording with Sting. And it was the first time I've been on a plane in 14 months, which is a record for me. Even when I was an infant, my family would fly from Southern California to visit relatives back in Minnesota once or twice a year. I'm always flying, right? So it's like, it was the first time I've been on the ground that long. And when I flew to New York, I really thought that I was going to land and be like, oh, yes, I'm out of town again and I'm working. And after a day or so of being on my own and walking around the city between the studio and my hotel, I was like kind of lonely, kind of missed my kids and my dogs and my wife. I was like, and maybe I want to be back home. Maybe I right. don't want to be out right. here, you know? Yes. But anyways, the grass is it, it, always greener, right? Yeah. You know? and, and, you know, the, the sad part is hopefully it taught, it did teach a lot of people, you know, that time is so valuable and wow. who you give your time to and who you spend your time with is very, very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, uh, right when the, uh, right when the pandemic hit and I realized, and I, I started taking it seriously, you know, meaning I remember, you know, first we heard the news, the stuff was happening over on the other side of the world. Right, and we'd see right. footage of, you know, uh, you know, little towns in China being completely shut down, cities in China being shut down. I remember hearing a friend of mine up in Seattle, because they were the first, I think they were kind of like patient zero for, you know, cases in, in the States. And I have some friends who live up in Seattle and I talked to a buddy of mine who said, yeah, they closed the, you know, they closed my kid's school for the rest of the week. And I was like, oh, wow. I'm like, that's pretty heavy, man. And I thought, wow, I'm glad I don't live in Seattle, you know, <laughs> where all that bad stuff happens, unlike Southern California. And, you know, within days, it was like, you know, it was all over. So when I realized, oh, wow, okay, all this stuff is going away and I'm not going on tour. And I was rehearsing at the time for Coachella. I was going to go play Coachella with Danny Elfman. That I was really excited about all these things started just vanishing kind of overnight and just getting knocked over like dominoes one by one. I kind of had to say, you know what? You know, I built a studio at my house 
10 years ago. And I've never really had the time to like dive into it. And I've always kind of complained about not having the time to dive into it. But the good news has been, I've always been busy out in the real world, working at world-class studios, traveling all over the place, playing gigs. I've had no reason to have to, uh, you know, hunker down in my, in my studio in my backyard to do sessions because I've always been busy doing real sessions, right? <laughs> so I thought, man, you know, I've got a handful of friends that do that kind of stuff that do remote recording for people and have for a long time, mm-hmm. pre-pandemic that have just figured it out, you know, but so I kind of like really started to, I really had to look at it and, and, and learn how to use it. You know, I knew how to use it a little bit, but I really had to think to myself and go, okay, that can't just be like a hobby demo thing where I do favors for people back there. I really have to like, I've got the gear, some of the know-how. Um, I should be able to make this work, you know? And without really like, you know, going out and having to beg for work, just kind of like letting a few, you know, a handful of producer friends of mine and other musicians know that at a place and, and for them too, they they weren't able allowed to go out and do studio stuff anymore. So yeah, having a home studio that saved a lot of people. Yeah, because it wasn't just me needing to do remote work. It was like the people. Wise. Well, yeah, well, that too. Yeah, which will bring me to something else. But I mean, just like even other guys that everyone else that was working, anything anyone was doing was going to have to be remotely from a home studio. So it's not like I was just open for business in my home studio. It's like every engineer I knew was working from home. Every producer I knew was doing sessions from, from homes, farming stuff out and sending people stems to work on at their uh, respective places, you know? And uh, so the whole world kind of, I mean, and, and for, for all different kinds of businesses, right? Everyone's, if, even yeah. if you, you know, work in an office, no, you're no longer going into the office. You're just doing it at home, um, doing these great Zoom calls and uh, you yeah, know, all that. Zoom, yeah. yeah, Zoom became like the only way to communicate. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm still kicking myself for not investing in Zoom like the the day the pandemic was started, you know? Everybody, I know. You know? But, um, and, you know, when you say the sanity part, it's like I started, you know, I've got a record coming out in a couple of weeks, right? Uh, uh, I've, got, I've got two records coming out. They're, they're two solo records and they're a collection of one-minute songs, all of them are what there's 41 one minute songs, just 20 on the first volume and 21 on the second volume. I love it. And uh, it's great because if you don't like the song, by the time you can push skip, it's going to be over. So just deal with it. You know, I love, I love, (laughs) I love it. You know, one one of the first things that I loved about you besides playing, but I I knew that you were a really cool guy was when you did the whole uh, goof kind of GoFundMe thing. I mean, because we were, we, you know, I've always been against that. You know, personally, yeah. and Monodrama could not. People would call and say, "Can you promote this?" And we said, "No, we're not gonna. We're not gonna promote any of that stuff." Because I mean, you know, come on. When I when I was growing up, you you got you had to have a budget. And you had to get make get your money from wherever you had to get, it, and you had to make a record. You don't beg people to give you money to make a record. Yeah. So yeah. you know, so when you came up with that whole thing, for, for people who don't know, real quickly, uh, Josh came up with this like GoFundMe kind of thing. Uh, but it wasn't really GoFundMe. I wasn't. My record was already made. What it was, I wasn't asking for people to just give me money to do something. Uh, I made a record, and then it, I did. People had started to do these things where they had different tiers, like 
Right. If you want an LP and you want it signed, it's going to be 50 bucks. Right. But right. for 75 bucks, we'll also throw in a T-shirt. So I started doing things like, yeah, buy my record. Wash but white. Yeah, but for 300 bucks, you get my record, a signed drum head, and we go have lunch at P.F. Chang's. <laughs> like, instead of being all this ridiculous shit, take you, give you a tour of Disneyland, you know? There's all this ridiculous shit, you know? I love Give it. you a haircut, I, you know? Like, this ridiculous I, that was, stuff. That, that was brilliant, because people did it after you. I never saw anybody do it before you, but people did do that after you, you know? Yeah, well, yeah. I, that, that was one of the things I was like, oh, this guy's cool. Not only is he a, you know, amazing player, talented musician but this guy's pretty cool <laughs> yeah thanks man I, I try to have fun with it you know and that well, was that's, that's the thing this is supposed to be fun but now i wanted to ask you because you do so 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 much and because all right you come from a musical family because your brother's pretty successful your dad's pretty successful as mm -hmm. a musician well respected and everything did you and you started very young but did you always pay attention to the business part of the music business or did it take you a while or do you still not really pay attention? Um, I, I pay attention now, but I don't pay a ton of attention to it. And I definitely didn't when I was younger. I also wasn't running around drinking and taking drugs and just like partying and doing gigs. When I was a kid, I was very serious with my work ethic and, and being dependable and, uh, and being clear for all my gigs and stuff, you know? And so I definitely was uh, more responsible and more of a professional, I think, at a really young age compared to a lot of other people that were teenagers playing rock music at the time. Um, but I wasn't, you know, if you ask me, I mean, I, all the time I'll get like a royalty check or a publishing check for something for digital downloads or for this or that or for music that's, used in reruns for television shows I played on and I'll get these checks and I'll be like, I have no idea why I'm getting, I don't even remember playing on the, the soundtrack of this movie. Why are they, I'm just, oh, it's a work for hire. Why am I getting paid a residual? Like, but I'm not gonna call and hunt them down and go, why are you paying me? It's like, sure, I'll take the check, right? But I don't even know how a lot of that stuff works. You know what I mean? I, I know there's some, some kind of, uh, there's a few different avenues and kind of, uh, coalitions that are getting you know studio musicians paid on stuff where maybe they should be getting paid a little bit of money on things that have sold millions and millions of copies where originally might have been just a work for hire thing so yeah. i might have done the session and gotten paid x amount of dollars and if it goes off and sells 10 million copies i don't see any of that money and that's that's fine because that was agreed upon in the beginning that's just the right. way it is but there's there seems to be a few different things now and a few different companies that are kind of like looking out for the little guy you know and and the studio drummer or the studio bassist on a track and so yeah i'm starting to get all these weird kind of mystery tracks here and there and uh, like i said i'm fine with it I'm, I'm i'm not hunting anyone down going why are you sending me this but i'm kind of like yeah. why are they sending me this <laughs> thank god they're sending me because a lot of people they're not sending to that should they should be sending to so that's right you know yeah. Those, yeah that's that's why you got you know the business like you know we try to teach that now especially because you know even me growing up i never paid attention to business i signed papers away i lost publishing you know the whole thing which right. everybody does so these right. days there's no reason for people to be ripped off by anyone because sure. they should know better now you know the younger generation they, they have it hard enough with the business absolutely
Absolutely. So besides, um, let's go back now. Um, besides dad, um, who, who were some of your influences growing up? Well, I'd say my, my first two favorite drummers, meaning when I was starting when I was eight, maybe is when I really started paying attention. It's funny, my dad, having been the conductor of the Disneyland band, the big band out of Disneyland, there's pictures that date back to when I was two years old, like holding drumsticks, like standing like with the Disneyland marching band, like with a hat on, like while they play a set, like it makes the drummer tapping on the railing, you know what I mean? And then, but then a year later, there's pictures of me when I'm three or four with a plastic clarinet or a plastic saxophone sitting with it. So I was always around all this music and I really loved it and was obviously taken with it from a very young age, but I didn't really start playing drums. So I was probably about eight, between like eight and nine around then. Which is young, especially years ago. Like yeah, now yeah. you have these seven, eight year old, five year old, you know, protégés on getting a million followers, but back then. Right. Eight years old was pretty young. Right. And also, I kind of had to seek it out myself. I didn't, I mean, I was around music, but I didn't have, my dad wasn't, you know, I don't think any parent is making their kids play drums. (laughs) 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 I keep them away from the drums, I think. Um, (laughs) But I also didn't, I didn't have any older brothers or older cousins that were hipping me to things. So anything that I learned, most of the stuff I learned kind of on my own and the stuff I gravitated, the music, I was around the music, but like I said, a lot of big band, a lot of jazz through my dad and uh, the stuff they started gravitating towards. Uh, for instance, I'll tell you, I was going to tell you my, a couple of my earliest favorite drummers, two of my biggest influences at a really young age. They're so different, but was Buddy Rich and Alex Van Halen. <laughs> okay. And, you know, and I still love them both. And I right. still listen to them both. And if a clip comes on one of the plan, I still watch and, you know, watching Alex takes me back to being eight years old and going, oh, man, I love old Van Halen, you know, and, uh, and even with Buddy, buddy no, no matter how many times you see a Buddy thing, you watch it. It's like and people are still trying to figure out what he did. I mean, what a badass. There's just it's like to say he's a natural is such a cliche, silly undersell of how great Buddy Rich was the command he had of the drum set, like just made it look effortless, you know? Well, until he was in the middle of one of those like marathon uh, out of this world, single stroke roll where you're going, holy shit. And then you're going, okay, he's not making it look easy because that looks really hard. And he looks like he's about to have a freaking heart attack right now. (laughs) Sweating, sweating and growling and going for it. And I mean, I saw Buddy play three or four times when when I was a little kid, he'd play out at Disneyland Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd always do these big band summers out there and they'd have the Glenn Miller Orchestra and the Count Basie Orchestra. Louis Bellison would play out there. So Buddy would always kind of close the summer season out at Disneyland. He'd play like four or five nights in a row, a couple sets a night out at Carnation Plaza. And me being a drummer at age eight or nine, my dad would take me out and I could kind of sit on the side of the stage, honestly, about 15 feet from him. And, you know, I'm up on the stage, like basically next to the monitor board watching him play and it just it had such a profound effect on me and uh <laughs> i mean it's just it was cool i would go there knowing i was go like before the show would start after i'd seen him play a couple times even at age like i said eight or nine i'd go okay i'm about to watch this guy play drums he's the greatest drum in the world and 
He's going to blow. I know he's going to blow me away. And I know that there's no chance in hell that he's going to stumble or mess up. There's just, it's, it's just that he, he doesn't do that. You know what I mean? And I was always so impressed with the fact that I go, this guy just, no matter what, I know that he's got this no matter what, you know what I mean? And yep. yeah, every time it was just astounding watching him play and watching the energy come off those drums from literally I could spit on him. You know what I mean? Right. That close. And it was uh, just like life changing, man. And, you know, speaking, we talked about not on, on the air, but you and I at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about Vinny for a minute. And uh, I brought Vinny out. My dad and I brought Vinny out in like 84, maybe right around the time I met Vinny to see Buddy play and we introduced him, uh, introduced Vinny to Buddy. And it was really wow. cool, wow. really cool moment. Yeah. I don't have a, I wonder if Vinny got a picture that night. Obviously no one had phones then. So like yeah, to have see, a camera, you really had to have this big, you I had to know. be carrying a camera, right? Yeah. So I don't know if Vinny and Buddy got a picture, but I've got a great picture I should send to you after this phone call. I've got a great picture of Vinny and I out at Disneyland seeing Buddy play. Wow. You know? And uh, uh, let me let me hang up from my let me decline my son who's trying to call me right now. Um, Gosh. Sorry about that. Uh, anyways, yeah, we uh, I've got a great picture of Vina out there. I'm 12 years old and I've got like a Zildjian sleeveless shirt on with like parachute pants, and Vinny's like skinny as a rail with like this mustache and a mullet, you know, and right, probably right. 28 years old. It's awesome. Such That's a great awesome. picture, man. So did, did 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 I read somewhere or did did I dream it that he that he was your godfather, Vinny Caliuda? Yeah, no, not not godfather, but had an interesting relationship with him because I met Vinny, I think either 83 or 84 out at an AM show, and I was like 10 or 11. And it's funny, he was playing at the Simmons booth back when Simmons was like a cutting edge brand new thing, right? And they'd have this booth that people would all get packed in there, you know? Uh, and he was playing at, you know, whatever, 11, one and three. He'd do like three <laughs> sets a day for, you know, play for 20, 30 minutes. Was, and was I, he spaghetti in between? <laughs> no, but he was smoking cigarettes. We were in this tiny, tiny little sweat box with foam on the walls. Everyone's in there just smoking and playing and you know no one thought anything of it you know i was like yeah he's, i mean the tiniest little confined space where you couldn't breathe anyways he's just smoking and playing drums you know and i recognized him because i read modern drummer magazine and they had these great yamaha ads that were like on the spines they were on the edge they were slender ads that were on the sides of the pages and each issue in the early to mid 80s they would always you know Yamaha would run like at least four or six ads where you'd open up one, you know, one side is Vinny and the other side it's Rick Murata. And then you turn the page and one side it's Omar Hakim and the other side is Peter Erskine. Uh, I'd never heard him play, but I'm like, I know that name. I see him in those modern drummer ads for Yamaha drums. I better, he must be famous, you know? <laughs> and I went and saw him play and it, it completely just jarred me. It just like, it spun me around and I was like, holy shit. So I'm like a fourth grader, right? So after the show, I introduced myself to him and I get him sign my autograph album that I had him sign that weekend. Jeff Picaro, I got a good picture somewhere of me. I found recently of me and Jeff Picaro when I met him for the first time when I was 10 or 11 because I later wow. became friends with Jeff and knew Jeff fairly well before he passed away in 92. But anyways, 
you know, I got pictures of me getting Dave Garibaldi's autograph and Vinny's autograph and, and Jeff's autograph. Uh, but anyways, I saw him play and I started kind of following him around the NAMM show, kind of like a lost puppy dog. And he was totally cool to me. He's like, hey, follow me over to the Zildjian booth. I'm going to get a dry T-shirt. And I'll, I'll get you a shirt. I'm like, well, I'm going to get a free Zildjian T-shirt. Wow. You know? And we'd, what I do remember is we'd, we'd walk from Simmons over to the Zildjian booth and he would get stopped about, I don't know, every six feet. Even back then, he was just, he was such a star on the rise at the time. You know what I mean? Uh, there was such a buzz about him around that time. He was just out of Frank's band a couple of years. He'd been playing with Joni Mitchell, starting to dominate the studio scene in LA, you know, and just on fire, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he would play a lot of Sunday nights up at Bake. The, the cool night of the baked potato, right? The jazz club in LA was the uh, was Sunday nights, kind of. That was like Sunday, Monday nights, oddly enough, instead of Friday or Saturday. Sunday, Monday nights were like, I don't know, just that they had the extra special gigs. And there was a band that Vinny had around that time that was comprised of Joni Mitchell's backup band, touring band at the time, which included it was Larry Klein on bass, Michael Landau on guitar, and Steve Tavalloni, who played this like, you know, like a MIDI saxophone or something awful. Um, but it, they, were, they called themselves Dog Cheese. And Dog Cheese would play the big potato. And it was then basically, they'd go out with Joni and kind of have to like keep it on about five or six, you know? Mm -hmm. And then they'd be home and they'd want to go out and just like blow. And they'd go to the big potato and they'd fucking just shred and just tear the roof off the place. And ask anybody there's a handful of people that got to see those shows in the mid 80s dog cheese shows yeah. they were just phenomenal but and vinnie would always keep like a couple always, seats you know, what's that you can't pay for those that look that that's a lesson you can't pay for that kind of stuff well and not just that the thing is because there was a misconception that i took lessons from vinnie and i never sat down and took lessons from vinnie but what it was was at that age he would put me on the guest list i had his phone number but call him he'd answer the phone probably answer really dumbass questions that I was asking at age 10 or 11, but he took the time and he would, he would talk to me and then he'd throw me on the guest list. And, and I grew up in Orange County and it would be a school night, right? Sunday night. So my parents would maybe take a nap on Sunday afternoon and my dad would drive me up from Orange County. We'd go up to North Hollywood, Studio City or whatever. <clears throat> he'd have a couple of seats like right behind the drums and we'd get in and I'd get to sit right, like, you know, two feet from him. And watch him play so like you said like these were like invaluable lessons but it, it was never the two of us sitting down with a metronome and a practice pad and right. opening up stick control Not a but i mean yeah, anyone can do that right but it was like to be able to have a direct line to him for any silly ass questions that i had and him putting me on the list for gigs and setting me up with a chair next to the drums i mean that was unbelievably generous and and uh valuable for yeah. me you know so i owe vinnie a lot in that respect That's the best you, know? you know sitting next to somebody even buddy and just watching people play that's how oh, that's man. how and here and even sometimes just hearing stories because then as you get older and you're hearing certain stories that maybe you're not so aware of or or you're thinking about well is this a good thing but then just listening to their advice and what they have to say, that's, that's priceless lessons as well. Absolutely.
absolutely. And, you know, a couple other guys like that, they were good to me at a young age. Uh, and that I, I, I still know, or like Jim Keltner, you know, all these guys were guys that I kind of met from falling around, falling around in the NAMM show, you know, and tugging on their shirts. And they're like, ah, oh, this kid seems nice and cute kid and, you know, ambitious. You know what? And That's what keeps every generation, that, you know, they always say don't meet your idols. I mean, I, well, all my idols that I've met growing up, um, you know, they helped me. And, 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 and that, that put me in the position that I'm in now. If I would, If they didn't help me, or, you know, give me some of their time and like same thing with Vinny with you and teach you, you know, uh, uh, advice or just, you know, not officially, teach, but watching them. That, yeah, that's, sure. how, that's how you learn, you know, that, that that's how you learn. Schooling, you know, if you're going to be a jazz musician, you're going to read charts, you're going to play in a Broadway show, that's that's all well and good. But if you want to be in, you know, a pop star or a rock drummer or you want to be in a band or whatever, it's a totally different way to teach somebody how to be. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. I, uh, you know, around that same time I met in uh, John Robinson and, and he, there was two times that my parents dropped me off, drove me up to LA and he let me sit in on a couple of sessions when I was like 11, 12 years old. There's a studio no longer in LA that any seasoned old studio LA vet would tell you about called uh it was called Lion Share Studios. Oh yeah. I never worked there. I never worked there because by the time I was working it was gone. It was gone, yeah. But 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 when I was 11 or 12, I remember my mom dropping me off and I got to sit in a room with with John and uh George Duke was producing and it was a Barry Manilow session. And uh so I got to hang out at a Barry Manilow session and then then John let me come up to Ocean Way a couple months later, and I watched him record with John Anderson from Yes. Wow. I could just hang out and be a fly on the wall as a kid, just watch, watching him roll tape and do takes. And it was like, and it was great because I still know John. And, and uh, whenever yeah, I went into him, was, they're all proud of you. And there was something obviously that they saw in you, you know, that, you know, because th those guys meet a lot of people, let's face it. There was something that they obviously saw in you that they knew you had the talent and something good could happen. So that's right. great time to make Yeah, man. You. And you know what? And, and my parents, and just to, to tame, I won't go into the stories, but just a, a couple other honorable mentions. Greg Bissonette, I've been buddies with since I was like 12. Uh, yep. Terry Bozio. Uh, and like, yeah, Keltner and, and Jeff Beccaro, rest in peace. It's like, you know, they were all really good and and really uh supportive and 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 helpful to me at a young age and more than once even in recent years even maybe a year or two ago more than once i've been reminded my mom will remind me when <laughs> i'll be somewhere and i'll say yeah this or that or yeah this kid you know i'll tell you a funny one my kids were asking me about it the other day. I was like, yeah, it seems kind of weird. You know, that I think if you really want to, you can kind of just go online. And even if it's not up right away, if you spend five or 10 minutes, you can fi basically find anyone's address. It's really easy to like, I, I, do I, your I, homework. There's good right? and bad about social media. It doesn't happen often, but it happens. And uh, part, I was trying to explain it to my kids the other day, but then I kind of put myself right about it, which is I get uh, fairly often, I'll get just an envelope sent to me from a name I don't recognize and I'll open it and it'll have a self-addressed envelope and like two or three uh, paper part of a CD that you take out, you know, with a little letter. Hey, Josh, you know, if you wouldn't mind, we, you know, just sign these and send them back to me, you know? 
And first, my initial, my knee-jerk reaction is kind of like feeling sort of intruded upon and being like, oh, really? You just send me shit at my house? And yeah, just right. sign all the shit and send it back to me, man. Thanks. Right. Kind of like, oh, hey, wait a second. <laughs> you know, but like maybe I don't feel like it or, you know, who gave you my address? Or, you know? Right, right. And the other day I was sitting there with one of my kids and my kid's like, just look at that. It's like, sign It's going to take you 30 seconds. Sign up for this guy. He says he's a big fan of yours. He lives in the middle of nowhere in a town I'd never lived, heard of before in Texas. I'm like, okay, screw it. And I signed the stuff and I'm like, you know, it's like. It, you made, you it, made his dream. You made a dream come true for somebody. It took a minute and a half, but you know, the grumpy kind of cynical part of me is like, you know, F off, yeah. man. I don't want to send me and shit you, and tell and me what to do. Going up at your house, <laughs> ringing your yeah, ringing your doorbell. It's like yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Luckily, wow. it's funny, man. The kind of fans that I have, I've had people say, "Do you have any weird fans that show up places or weird fans that this or that?" <laughs> I think the thing is, I think the people that have weird fans are singers that are singing stuff and people out there that are either misinterpreting what they're saying or thinking that they're singing specifically to them. So they've got to go knock on the door. They have to be friends with them. They're going to jump the fence. They're going to meet you no matter what. My fans are all just cool drummers or cool musicians that read liner notes. (laughs) You know, that's what I would say. They're just people that are like, yeah, how cool, man. Freezes with Weezer and Michael Buble and and Devo. they, They just go... That to them is cool, and it's kind of starts and stops there. Right. There's right. No, there's no psycho at home cutting themselves up and reading the lyrics and being like, ah, I've got you know, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna kill yeah. them. And, <laughs> you know? and, and and that's how that's how we grew up. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's how we grew up. We read liner notes, and then you know, I would do yeah. that. I met Steve Ferroni when I was 14 years old. I watch out his wife and you know, so to, you know, I play hooky from school, and I befriended the studio owner because we played one time, and he came, she's uh, to see us, and he told me, you know, he he ran Atlantic Studios, and long story short, he invited me up. He said, sit in the corner, don't say a word. If somebody asks you to leave, just get up and go out. Or and I, I I met Steve Ferroni, who I was idolized, and that was it. I know him since I'm 14 years old. I watched, got to watch Average White Band, and you know. That led to meeting other people, and yeah. that's how you it's get great. Back. Yeah, absolutely, you- absolutely. So, um, God, you know, people have to look up, you know, the list of who you play with because that that'll take up enough time. But Devo, you've been with Devo now since what, ninety six, ninety seven? Yeah, yeah, since about ninety six. And you know, it's funny. I posted something on my Instagram about a month ago, which my brother found an old videotape of us on Christmas morning in like 1982. So I was about 10 and I open up an LP and it's a Devo record. Right. And, you know, and I'm, I'm in like Winnie the Pooh pajamas. I'm in pajamas with freaking feeties on them. I'm still a little, I'm like in third grade or something, right. Second grade. And I'm dancing around with this Devo album. And, you know, here I am like, you know, that same week I'm driving up to SIR to go rehearse with them for these gigs that we just did, which is a handful of shows. And it's like, to me, for me personally, there's a couple bands specifically that are probably, you know, some of the smaller bands as far as record sales that I've been in or worked with over the years. But 
mean the most to me because I'm such fans of theirs since I was a kid. And one is Devo, being a huge Devo fan since I was eight. And another one is The Replacements and Paul Westerberg. You know, I'm just such a fan of Paul's and have been since I was 15, 16. I used to dream of just meeting him one day, let wow. alone, hey, man, I've been making records with this guy for 20 years now. You know, yeah. it's to me that for me, that's a personal success that just uh, just means a lot, you know, yeah. and I feel yeah. good about. So. so like as far as like a warm up routine. Uh, be before you go out to play because you 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 are such a high energy drum. I mean the vandals I mean that stuff you know I, it, I I like a lot of that stuff you know and I was never into the punk scene but your singer had such a, 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 a melodic kind of voice so it made it a little bit more poppy you know so it was that punk pop kind sure. of sure yeah yeah yeah, but, yeah yeah you know but your drumming I, were you a hyper kid like where, like, how do, you, how do you get, like, your drumming is just well, like... Well, it's funny you said that. It's, it's funny you said that, man, because two nights ago, I played up in Sacramento with The Offspring, and we played this big festival out there. And I'd been home from Greece for, like, three, four days, and I did a, record, I did a session up in L.A., but it was, you know, you're starting and stopping. You're not really playing, like, plan, you're not sweating and going for it. So, you know, I kind of had kind of a mellow week at home, right? The one session. And then I, f I fly up on Saturday afternoon, the day of the gig, and you sit backstage and you're talking with friends and family that are there, whatever. And then, you know, and I'm also, you know, I'll be 49 in December. So I'm not a kid anymore. Um, and uh, <laughs> Yeah, and that's Christmas, baby. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I'll be 49 at Christmas. So anyways, um, it's funny because that night I, I didn't hurt myself. Right. And I got through the show fine, but I actually afterwards, I went, God, I told my wife, it's like, she came with me to the gig. I went, man, there's like tonight took me a minute at the beginning of the set because it's like that particular night. And actually most nights uh, I actually don't warm up and that's probably uh, not a good thing, but I don't warm up a whole lot. And, um, and I mentioned to her after the show, I said, you know, I've seen Danny Carey do, and I know some other drummers that do it, even just, and not even the wrist, just getting your heart rate up. I've seen guys like for like two minutes before going on stage, on the side of the stage, like jumping rope. Right, right. I was just going to say Actually to wake yourself up and really start to like actually getting your heart beating. Because I go, right. man, we've been sitting home for the last couple of days with the dogs and the kids. And I all day today came up we didn't sound check so we didn't play at all because it's the festival and we're hanging out we go to catering and we're talking and having a laugh and then you go on stage it's like okay go and the light and you're like holy shit you know and you throw yourself into this thing with zero warm-up it's like i pulled it off fine but i really i felt it you know and i went what am i doing like never warming up or jumping rope or anything just like waltzing on stage stretching like i'm like i'm 23 you know <laughs> but i'm still i'm still knock on wood Thank off, God. But, yeah, now you're you in know. great shape.
it's it's yeah i uh i've gone through i've gone through phases where i've warmed up a bit um but it's never it's, it's not it's not a regular thing for me you know it, it's funny i have i'll just tell you now uh, i have almost like a superstitious thing that i do the only person i warm up with and i don't know how i started doing it but I can't not do it or we can't like go on stage is with Sting. Every gig I play with Sting. And the only reason I say this is because some people, if they follow me on Instagram, they could go, I've seen him warm up. What does he mean he doesn't warm up? Well, the other night with the offspring, I didn't warm up. And the my Devo shows I just did, those gigs, I didn't warm up. Sting, uh, even though it's physically less demanding of a job than like right. going on the offspring, right. I right. should be more right. warmed up. It's more physical. But right. uh, I started doing a thing it's a uh, it's a thing I saw Peter Erskine do, and then when I posted it, I've heard a million guys go, "Oh, I used to do that drum line all the time." That's a famous warm up, which is uh, I don't know how I stumbled on it because I, I'm a big Peter Erskine fan, but the last thing I do is like sit around and YouTube people's warm up routines, you know. So I'm looking <laughs> around, and it says Peter Erskine for some practice pad ad or something and i clicked on it or something and he did this thing where this thing where i forget where he starts let's say he starts at eight but he does at, at, at a uh, consistent tempo not too fast but not slow going eight on each hand seven on each hand six six five five four four three three two two one one two two three three four four back up to eight oscillating in between that right so i do that uh, once you get down to one and two, especially if it's kind of fast, it's kind of like almost not worth it. I, I go in between. I go from. Uh, uh, what do I do? I go between six. I go six, five, four, three, four, five, six, five, four, three, four, five, six on each hand uh, for five minutes straight to the <laughs> The first track on a Frank Zappa record called Jazz from Hell, which is all like Synclavier computer music. Mm -hmm. And there's a song called Night School. And it's the perfect tempo. And it's in 4-4, but with a bunch of like, a bunch of weird, like kind of like polyrhythmic, jagged elbows being thrown into it constantly, even though it's basically in 4-4. But yeah, I, I, pl I play it down. And I do that warm up and I start and it has to, I can't miss a beat. If I miss a beat, I, I have to start over from the top and it's a five minute right. thing. So right. I'm totally concentrated and I just go, yeah, six, six, five, five, four, four, three, three, four, four, five, five, six, six, five, five, four, four. And it's almost just like a meditative thing too, you know? But the joke is like, you know, people will come in the room and they'll go, have you done Frank yet? <laughs> Literally, when are you going to do Frank? Dominic Miller sings guitars the other night in Greece. He goes, I haven't heard any Frank yet. We're playing in 10 minutes. I go, oh shit, right. You know, and I'm half asleep. Oh, I better, you know, get, I get my phone. I put yeah. my phone in my pocket right here so I can hear it, you know, not right. too loud, but not too far away. And I, to be honest, on gigs like one-offs, when I don't have a practice pad backstage, I just look for the nearest couch or what's a surface I can play where it's not too soft, but I'm up. I'm not hitting a table where it's going to drive everyone crazy, yeah. sticks on a piece of metal you know so i find something that's kind of like forgiving but you know and uh you know spend five minutes and i do my little frank zappa night school peter erskine warm-up routine <laughs> that's that, that hey listen it, it works right and and like you said too you even mentioned it also helps your mind yeah it all you know because you know you, you gotta put you, you know you know what it's like you know but people out there you, you gotta 
you got to be in a certain mindset. You got to forget everything that's happening and step in like, you know, you're Josh Freese. I tease Jim Kelton about that. He'll say something to me and he'll, you know, he'll go, that person just wanted to talk to me. And I go, yeah, because you're Jim Kelton. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I want to say Sting was saying one, one day, it's like, yeah, you know, it's funny. Everyone's got these cameras. They like, want to take a pic you know they want to take a picture with you you know it's everyone like these guys wants to take a picture with you and it's like he's, he's kind of like almost saying like for what i'm like well because you're world famous and respected and bitter like of course they want to show their friend at work that they met you at the freaking truck stop and, man and in their no mind, one's gonna believe them you know yeah, in their mind while they're looking talking to him every police song is going through the head that they grew up yeah with. yeah so him it's just him he's bored of himself he's like it's just me i'm like yeah well Dude, you're. Do you know, let me remind you who you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's you know? the way. The way. But that's that's what makes people real and genuine. And that's. Oh no, nah, he's great, man. I mean, I, I will tell you, it's like. Does he make you exercise? Because he he's into. I know, you know. No, man. Yoga. Has he tried to teach you yoga? No, he kind of enables me by handing me Twix bars and Reese's peanut butter cups backstage. To be honest, <laughs> um, he. Uh, Sting is surprisingly cool. Not, not that you think he wouldn't be cool, but I, mean, I don't know. He just, like, when I met him in 2004, I really thought that he was going to be too busy being rich and famous, basically, to care about the gig. I don't know why I thought that. Sometimes guys that have been around for that long and have made that much money and have sold that many records and, and are older than I am, I'm like, how could they care anymore? Do they still care, you know? And uh, I was blown away at how much he cares and how into the gig he is and uh and musicians he, he he's a musician that. man he's a bass player just when you go it's sting and he's a celebrity and he's saving the rainforest no. he's got all these fabulous rich and famous he's friends a he's a fucking bass player man a singer and a songwriter and that's what he does yep. he's not just a tabloid celebrity like but right. but you forget that sometimes and not until i started working with him I'd have to remind myself, like, yeah, Josh, what were you thinking? Of course he eats, sleeps, and breathes music. He's singing, and he's written more hit songs than I've written postcards in my life. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's unbelievable, his, the, the, the amount of work and the incredible things he's done. But what else is cool about Sting is that, aside from being really knowledgeable about uh, classical music and heavy into jazz and stuff, because of the where the police came from and the era that they came up in in London, meaning the middle, you know, the late 70s, middle late 70s, mm -hmm. he's actually really well versed in a lot of like punk rock stuff. So yeah, he can sit around and talk to you about weather report all day, but he'll also sit there and talk to you about the damned or the buzzcocks or the sex pistols, or you know, like right. he did gigs with all those bands. So I'll go, oh, I forget that he knows who Captain Sensible from the Damned is. Wow. Most guys that were just like talking about classical music or talking about Miles Davis wouldn't be talking about so-and-so from the Buzzcocks. Like how would they, how those worlds don't usually meet, you know? So that's really cool. It's just the, the both sides of the fence that he can play. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 No, yeah, no he's a great, that, that's, that's the thing. And obviously he picks you and Vinny because he's going to play with, you know, and Omar back in the day. I mean, he's always played. And, and of course, I mean, Stuart Copeland, let's, let's face it. Oh, Stuart's one of those guys that, you know, I always say this, there's drummers that play, you know, they do their gig and they're great, 
but there's drummers that change the world by influencing thousands of other drums. I, f- I forget who said it, but I really love, and it wasn't a famous guy. I think it was like a friend of mine or somebody that mentioned this casually a year ago. And I've used it a million times since, which, cause it made so much sense. It said, what John Bonham was to drums in the seventies and popular music and having a style and a voice that launched a million drummers and still influences them today. That was Stuart in the eighties. Stuart yeah. was the John Bonham of the eighties. Yeah. You know I mean, Every decade somebody comes along and I mean, you know what I mean? Because yeah, sure. There's a million other great drummers that came up in the eighties. We're talking what great unique drummers were also selling tens of millions of records that everyone or, or you know, girls have their their posters in their room. You know what I mean? They might not have a yeah, yeah. they might not have a Jack DeJanet poster in the room, teenagers, or you know, or a Steve Gadd poster, who hears these phenomenal drummers, but just meaning in the mainstream pop culture, mm-hmm. kids, they're not all over MTV all day long. So for someone like Stuart Copeland to be in a band that's all over MTV, but be that unique and and uh a new style. Oh man just so interesting and a breath of fresh air and just no one else like them, you know? I mean, drummers know what this means when you say it or other musicians, but I've tried to explain it to friends that don't play or to my wife. And I'll say, I'll say, you know, Stuart Copeland, he can play two, four and you can go try and play the same thing, but it's, and that goes to be said for uh, lots of different drummers and musicians, obviously everyone's unique, but I go, I've watched everybody try and play like Stuart and no one can, you know, and you can almost do it or you can play a Bonham groove, but it's not John Bonham, right. you know, right. what I mean? it's like, it's so it's just that, that, that that's thing, like, man, it's that little thing that, you know. Yeah, and that's like Bernard Purdy. I, I've sat next to Bernard man. Purdy. He plays the Purdy shuffle. Now, so great. I, I could be in another room and, and I, if, if somebody's playing that, I know right away, oh, Bernard's playing, you know, because like you say, there's certain people that just that's what they do and that's their thing. They invented it more or less. Almost. I listened to Bernard Purdy this morning at like 7:30 in the morning when I was driving my 14-year-old boy to school, to high school. Something came up like alphabetically, something was showing up on my on the screen on my car, which connected to my phone, showing me songs alphabetically, and it was started on A, and I was going through songs. I got to B, I got to Babylon Sisters, right? Wow, B A. Yeah. And I go, we're going to listen to this. And he goes, what's this? I go, we're going to listen to Steely Dan because your mom's not in the car. <laughs> my wife hates Steely Dan. My wife hates Steely Dan. And I love Steely Dan. I'm such a Steely Dan like freak. And she's just like, oh, I hate those guys. Yeah, yeah she hates them. It's, it's comical. It's really funny yeah, hearing yeah, us go back and forth on it. Yeah, I could. Well, I could see why. You know, but I mean, I well, I, I get it. it. It's such I, a thing. You're either gonna love it, or you're. Uh, if you don't love it, you're really not gonna like it at all. Plus, you know. And plus, and we appreciate every. You know, Gad's on there. Uh, oh Jeff, man, Rick Morales sure. on there. Yeah, you know. Sure. So of course, Just, yeah. yeah, I mean, I got into Steely Dan the same way I got into Zappa when I was 12, which was reading Modern Drummer magazine. It always goes back to reading Modern Drummer magazine when you're in fifth grade, right? Um, reading Modern Drummer and hearing these drummers talk about, you know, either that or seeing like the Asia record that was like being reviewed or something. And back then when there's no internet, you get an issue of Modern Drummer magazine, you're going to read it from top to bottom because that's 
all the information you're going to get about drums that month. <laughs> you know, you're not going to get it anywhere else. And so I remember reading like, oh, there's a record and Steve Gadd plays on it. And, and uh, Rick Murata plays on it. And Bernard Purdy plays on it. Jim Keltner plays on the Asia album, right? And mm-hmm. that's the first record I bought. That was the, and still my favorite Steely Dan record. And, uh, but that blew me away reading about, you know, I read about Steve Gadd's performance on the title track Asia. And I was like, Oh, I better check this out. So I wrote my mm-hmm. back to music plus or tower records, or whatever, and spent my $14 and bought the LP. And the right. same thing with Frank, I would read modern drummer. I'd read about these guys, Terry and Vinny and Chad Wackerman, everyone talking about, well, you know, the time I spent at Frank Zappa's band, I mean, Frank, that was the most challenging stuff I've ever done. So I'm, you know, 11 year old me's taking notes like this guy Frank Zappa sounds like he's really giving all these drummers a run for their money. Yeah. I better check him out, you know? And so that's how I got into Frank is hearing all these guys talk about, well, you know, going, you know, being in his bands, like going to boot camp, and you know, yeah. once yeah. you graduate from the Frank school, you can go anywhere you want. And you know, right. I was like, oh shit, right. okay. So yeah, just hearing guys talk about bands like that in modern drummer is what got me into Frank, is what got me into Sealy Dan. Yeah. I thank you for your support. You know, I, yeah, man. And you, well, you've been on the cover, you know, you know, how did Many that times. growing up reading it? And then now, you, you know, you've been on the cover a couple of oh, times. Oh, yeah. 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 I've been on the cover four or five times. And, yeah. uh, and I remember the first time, especially it's just like, well, I, I remember the first ad I was in, I was in a DW ad where DW would get one page and they would put like a bunch of different guys and almost like little bios underneath them mm-hmm. and tell a little story about because they only had freaking I've been pl- I've been with DW since 85 and they were a tiny company in 85 man and I was 12 and I, I got a, a pedal endorsement with them when I was 12 I was playing in a cover band out at Disneyland and uh and I got a pedal endorsement with the chain drive pedal right and uh Anyways, my point is, oh, so I was in an ad. I was in an ad. I remember Tommy Lee was in the ad and maybe Johnny Hernandez from Oingo Boingo, maybe Chad. It was just a small handful of guys that played the drums and, and, and or the pedals. Um, anyways, I was in that ad. I just couldn't believe it. I think my dad bought 20 copies of the magazine because I was in this <laughs> tiny, tiny little ad. But then, you know, you graduate to like, now I'm me and one other guy are in an ad. Now I've got my own ad. Oh, shit. Now I'm getting a story. I mean, it's not the cover, but it's the second one in line, you know, right. uh, or an up and coming thing or, you know, uh, uh, or in the modern drummer update. I've got a little mention from Robin Flans, or, you know, right. Right. and and but that the cover, that's just the whole another thing when you're on the cover of Modern Drummer magazine. It's just, yeah, it's mind blowing. And then, like I said, after working with your heroes for years and you go from like going from like, you can't believe they're calling you to like, yeah, I'll call them back. You know, right. it was always funny to me when like right now, when I said to you, I've been on the cover four or five times. I don't remember how many times I could actually sit down and figure it out, but it's been at least four times. Yeah. You and, know, um, we, we, yeah. No, your, your career, you know, at one, you know, you're one of the, the, the greatest drummers and one of the hottest drummers. And there was that period where, like I said earlier, Kenny was the only other one that wasn't like, if he wasn't on the record, you were on the record. And, and, and you know, yeah. and I was, I'm a pop head. So I, I really, you know, all the pop stuff that you did, I sure. knew that you do all that other stuff. And right. I like that more. I like the guys that, yeah, if they want to play with their chops and they want to do that fancy drum stuff, that's great. But playing with Michael Buble, or, or playing on on a, on a oh, yeah. and and, sure. and box and, and that kind of stuff. 
you know, that's sure. the stuff you want because you want to be on the radio. You know? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. And I told my dad, my dad and his wife went to go see Michael Buble about two weeks ago. And I said, Hey dad, how was the concert? So he just left me a message saying, we're going to go see Michael Buble. And I was out of town. I went, okay, cool. I remember that he mentioned that. How was Michael Buble? He goes, Oh, it was great. It was way better than I thought it was going to be. I didn't, I wasn't expecting much, but it was so good. I said, you know, I played on some of his records. He goes, you have, I go, yeah, I go, I've actually played on a couple of his biggest hits. Like that song, <laughs> just haven't met you yet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny, man. I'll tell you because out of the hundreds of records I've been on, the track just haven't met you yet is one of my favorite tracks that I've ever like is in the top five or 10 of when people go, what are your favorite songs you've played on or what, you know, that song to me, everything about the song and trust me, there's plenty of songs that I play drums on that, that forget about the song, even just my drumming. I'm just not interested. It just doesn't do much for me or I go, I don't want to hear that because the song's not good. The drumming sounds boring. I never have to hear that band or that song ever again. Michael Bublé, that track to me, it's a great song. I'm proud. It's a shuffle. I'm proud of the groove. Uh, everyone plays well on it. He sings great. It sounds great. The recording's great. Everything yeah. about it is like A class. And when it comes on the radio, I go, fuck, I love that I'm on this track. You know, yeah. I really do. It's really a great track, you know? And I feel good about being able to say that because there's lots of tracks I played on that are not good tracks. And that and, I... And, 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 and then you were hired gun. It's just a gig. It's just another Yeah, gig. whatever. You never know what's going to happen. You, you, like you said before, you don't say no. When, you, when, you, you, when you're up and coming, you just take every gig. You don't say, Absolutely. Uh, you know, Randy Cook, he was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he said, that's the worst thing to do is ask, well, how much am I getting paid? Don't worry about right. how much you get paid. You're going to get paid something, but yeah. just don't say no to the gig. You know, just do the gig. Yeah. You don't know where it's going to lead. Absolutely. And sometimes you go and you do the gig for free, you know, and you might meet a bass player on the gig that's going to land you a an album next week that you're going to play right. on or right. you show up to the session. I always tell people just, I mean, it happened to me not too long ago. I was, do, I was doing something kind of goofy, like, you know, what? not goofy, but just like not that interesting, like playing on a jingle for a, you know, Coke commercial or something. Right. And it was an in and out of the studio thing. But as I was leaving the studio, I ran into, uh, this a couple years ago, I ran into the singer from Incubus and my friend Brendan O'Brien, who's produced a bunch of great records. I've worked yeah, with a lot of yeah, producer. producers. And they're like, they're like, Josh, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh man, I played on this, you know, whatever, a Fritos commercial or whatever it was. You know, they go, <laughs> and they're like, oh, you're in town? I'm like, yeah. And they go, man, we're making Brandon a solo record, the Incubus guy. It's like, we've been like wow. trying to play drums on it and chopping it up. But I mean, are you in town? Can you, you want to play on a track tomorrow? Sure. So I come the next day, I play on a track. They're like, well, shit. What are you doing tomorrow? Can you play on three more? Next thing wow. I make this whole record with them just because I got out there and I went, drove that day to the studio to work on that session that wasn't very interesting. But right. I always tell people, go just get yourself out there and go play, whether it's for free or, you know, or whatever. Just go, go, uh, you know, just mix with other people and have get fun. out there and, and have fun and put yourself out there and show them that you're dependable and you're a good player and you're not a drag and everything, you know, yeah. you do that enough. Then stuff can start happening, you know? Yeah. It, it, you know, yep. That's, that's the best experience. Yeah. Cause you know, yeah. and that circumstance, you know, I, I always get into that. I, I love that whole, I love, you know, the whole circumstance thing i, I always do because one thing leads to another and then you go into some bad times but you know you, you only 
thinking about that time. You're not thinking about, well, this in the future, this is going to be better for me now or whatever. You know, it's a great thing. It's sort of, I mean, he's, he doesn't do music, but on the subject of this, there's an interview with Quentin Tarantino that was used as like, I think like bonus features or something like on the Reservoir Dogs DVD. You can find it on YouTube. And if you do, if you're clicking around and trying to see it, it has something to do with him telling the story of how he got his first break and how he got Reservoir Dogs made. And if you're clicking around YouTube and you see like, he's sitting outside, it's during the day, it looks like he's in his backyard or something. He's outside, there's like some trees or flowers around him. And it's this 15 minute thing, maybe 10 minute thing where he talks about how his writing partner took an acting class and the teacher from the acting class got the script and her boyfriend was teaching an acting class in New York with, and that was in business with Harvey Keitel. And somehow he read it and he liked it. He gave it to Harvey by chance. And instead of it going into the trash, Harvey decides to read it. He liked it. He brought it to a movie company. Now there's some legit, it, it, it's so cool. Right. He went from right. being this kid that worked in a video store in Redondo beach Yep. All of a sudden, he's making a movie with Steve Buscemi and Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel. Yeah. And, and, you know, a legend is born. And, yep. and it's cool because in, while he's telling the story, he goes, he goes, I'm not saying that this works every time. He goes, I'm just going to tell you a story of how it can work. Here's how it can work, because this is what happened to me. And he explains it and you just go, oh, man, it's so cool. It was just yep. really, it's, it, it's an inspiring, optimistic tale that he tells how, you know yeah and it's a puzzle how everything falls if you didn't meet this person then you or you weren't with this person like you said you didn't see brendan that day and yeah you know i mean yeah yep. yeah and, and, and things like that things like that have happened to me a lot you know in your situation it was like if i decided that i was too cool to show up and play on the the jingle or whatever that was that day i would have run into those guys i wouldn't have made that record so i'm like yeah i'm gonna leave the house i'm gonna go up to the studio and say hi to whoever's in the hallway <laughs> you know you know what? some people would love to play on a fritos commercial you know it's like right 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 yeah anyhow so before we go before i let you go um and and again thank you so much because i i know you know you've been really busy and and uh yeah man I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah. But uh, let's talk a little bit about gear, the gear that you use. Yeah. I know DW. You said DW, so you've been with them. What symbols? Pisces, right? Yeah. I switched to Pisces. Next year, it'll be 20 years. I, uh, I grew up a Zildjian guy. I was a kid playing Zildjian. I got a Zildjian endorsement when I was really, really young. And I played Zildjian from officially. I mean, I had a deal from 85 up until when I switched in 2002 and I've always been, I don't know. I, I early on found gear that I liked and stuff that sounded good to me. And I've stuck with like, I've been with DW drums my entire life. I've never switched companies once. And I'm really proud of that. You know, make, I'm a, they yeah, they make great drums um, and I'm a loyal guy and I've and been the, with them for so long. And you have to agree, right? John and Don, the people that, and Scott and, and uh, Garrison and everybody, it's the people that you deal with. Absolutely. And I've been dealing them with since they were in, you know, in a room the size of your bedroom, basically, starting off. And I was in sixth grade. And right. we both kind of like, you know, sort of grown up together, sort of the mm -hmm. company blossoming and, and my career doing well. And so it's, it's been really, really nice being 
with them for the whole ride. You yeah, know? and you um, stay loyal, you know, which is which is you know, we, there's certain people we call drum hoods, you know, they just jump from company well, to company. And that's why when I switched to Pisces almost 20 years ago, I thought about it long and hard. It wasn't a hasty overnight. Hey, yeah, maybe I'll just. Hey, these guys told me they'd give me more free stuff. Or these guys told me they'd, you know, uh, when I was leaving Zildjian. I liked everyone at Zildjian a lot. And actually, I still like their symbols. They make great symbols. They don't, it's not like Zildjian make bad symbols. Right, right. I was just gravitating towards something else. And I was starting to play some symbols that Pisces was making that they weren't making 30 years ago that right. caught my ear. The signature line, mm -hmm. uh, the traditional line, the 20 series. There was these things that weren't just the 2002s, which I've grown to really like too, but... I remember as a kid, I still don't really like the rude line, right? But as a kid, I remember hitting a rude crash symbol and just being like, oh man, Garbage no, <laughs> not into it. I hated yeah. it. Yeah. You know, but for some people it worked because the type of yeah. music. Right, right. Yeah. I personally, when I played it when I was a kid, I hated it and go, man, I'm never playing those symbols. And, um, and at a session in probably, I don't know, 2000, there was some Pisces signatures symbols up on the kit and i played them and i went wow these sound great they yeah. sounded so good they recorded so well they were just yep. just crystal clear and beautiful sounding and the right just the right amount of everything i was like, god i really like these symbols i started playing them more started playing them more but in the studio then i was like i want my own set of symbols but i don't want to buy them from them because i don't want them saying to their friends hey, guess what hey. Josh <laughs> just bought symbols from us yeah <laughs> I want to. I want to go to like a music store in Des Moines, Iowa, and just buy a set where I can do it and not have any drummers gossip about it. You know. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I forget how I did, but I ended up buying a set of cymbals. And, and also, and, you have to like them. Well, that's the thing. I I wasn't. I, I yeah. I went out and bought the cymbals. It was stuff. yeah. Just because you're getting free stuff. No. That, you know. Yeah. And when when I finally decided uh, well the thing was so i was kind of like behind closed doors playing the pisces stuff in studios and, and i started kind of resenting my situation because i'd go out and play live i'd be like okay now i can't play the symbols i want to play i've got to play the symbols i have to play right, and so right. i take these notions out that i at the at the time at least decided that i didn't like anymore at all um and when I finally said, you know what? And then I'd lie, I'd have to lie about stuff. Like, meaning I'd get asked, hey man, what symbols did you use on that first perfect circle record? You know, what kind of, were they K's? Were they A customs? I'm, I'd be like, yeah, actually they were. And I describe what's, what Zildjian stuff I was using. But meanwhile, this Pisces stuff, I'm like, why am I having to lie about this stuff? Right, right, this, right. this is becoming silly. And, and when I left, you know, I was leaving a group of people that I really liked that make an amazing product. I was like, okay, there's no way that they're not going to take it personally, even though it's not personal. And, you know, them trying to kind of entice me to stay, like any company would, if someone's trying mm -hmm. to leave, they say, well, what if we do this? You know, like, right, you right. can say more ads. Like, I'm not, I don't need more ads. It's not about that. Right. right. Well, what about if, if we did more of this or more? I'm like, it's, I'm like, it's not that. I'm just, this is what I'm wanting to hear. This is what I'm wanting to play. It has nothing to do with anything politically, personally, or amount of gear or ads. You do none of that stuff. It's strictly a sound thing that I want to do, you know? But like I said, 
it took me about a year and a half of playing this stuff secretly, the Pisces stuff, because because <laughs> I, I didn't want to just switch over to Pisces and then six months later go, I made a mistake. Right, right, And then right. go back to Zildjian, my right. tail between my legs, or then a month later, I'm playing Sabian. And then six months right. later, I'm playing this kind. It's like, I hate that when you see dudes jumping from company to company. It just looks lame. You know, it's always looked lame to me. So I'm proud. I've been the same stick. Well, you know. Kelly, I mean, we all love Kelly and Eric and, and Tim Shady over there. I mean, you know, yeah. again, it goes back to the people, you know, and, 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 and Zildjian too. I mean, you know, I love all the people at Zildjian as well. I love all the people at Meinl. I love all the people at Shabian, you know, but yeah. you have to, and, and especially in the studio. In the studio, you know, we all know you, you use whatever's going to sound the best because you're making the record and you need the best sound. And, you know, whoever you endorse, if they're not giving you that sound or you're in a studio that the engineer already has his Gretsch kit set up. Oh, yeah, that happens all the time to me. All the yeah. time I'll show up and they go, hey, we're doing a record. We've got a kit that we love. It's this vintage Gretsch kit. Right. We've got some right. old Ks. I mean, I, th I want to say there was a time a couple years ago I came to a session. They were doing a record with a drummer already. And there was a couple of tracks they kind of wanted to fix up. So, of course, I'm going to use the same stuff they were using. And I played the cymbals and there were some Ks and they sounded so great. And I, I think I remember emailing uh, either Kirsten or someone over there going, uh, man, I played some Zildjian stuff today and I just want to say they sounded great. They sounded nice. really good. You know what I mean? So anyways, uh, yeah, there's yeah. no there's no denying that they don't make an incredible, uh, you know, yeah. symbol. Yeah. And everybody, yeah, everybody. I mean, the product is the product, and it, you know, there's certain sounds, of course, that are going to be different. But it's it's really the people and the relationship you have that's really important. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the youngest has to believe. You know, now there's been so many cutbacks, of course, because of everything going on, budget cuts, and everything. You know, the young kids that you know, we used to get people used to email me, call me at the office, and say. Can you get me an endorsement? You know, with, with, with can you get me uh, free symbols with uh, so and so? You know, so and so. I saw you in a picture with so and so. Can you get me free symbols? I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, because they start sniffing around doing that too much, and they get wind of that, and then you know. Well, listen, I, I, again, um, you mentioned about your records. Uh, when are, when are the new albums coming out? Well, the first album comes out on October 29th. You can, okay. uh, you know, stream or buy on iTunes. I think there's a there's a limited edition of vinyl that's being done. I learned on the last record I made, don't make any CDs because no one wants CDs. I know you can't. <laughs> they either want to do it on their phone or they want the big piece of vinyl, you know, which now, is cool. Now, it's like now, an art piece, you know? Yeah, years ago, kids used to say, what's vinyl? Now they say, what's CD? <laughs> oh, yeah, I have no idea. So anyways, yeah, their record's coming. So I've got these two, volume one and volume two. Volume one's coming out October 29th. And then the second one, we're trying to figure out a release date, but probably probably right after the first of the year. It's going to, you know, it's probably come out three months later or something. But it's just a fun collection of wacky songs. That's you know? great. I love it. I love that they have a minute, you know, a minute yeah. or so. That's great. I love it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome, Billy. Thank you, everyone. Um, we'll see you next week on the Modern Trauma Podcast. One little shout out I'd like to give to this new company. Check this out. It's made out of broken symbols. Wow, nice. Oh, that's yeah. cool. This girl, Liz, uh, she has a company yeah. called Full Circle, and she makes all these bracelets and jewelry, oh, and cool. I fell in love when I saw this, and it's symbols, so it's like... Hey, man, you kind of just sold me. I can... Now, tell me this real quick. Can you, because I like the idea of energy that's been put into something. Could, I, could, I, 
could I send her one of my like broken symbols and have her make something out of Absolutely. it? So Absolutely. she would, she would, I'm sure she would love that. Absolutely. You know what I mean, instead of like some symbol, I don't know what company it was. I don't know who played on it, but a symbol that I used on tour and sweat on and you know, the whole thing. That's, that, that's mm. her whole, that's her whole philosophy about not letting something that has memory go to waste. Well, listen, everyone out there, Mon and Drummerland, thank you. Um, for supporting us and we'll see you next time on the modern drama podcast Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.